Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's episode features Scott Roberts. Scott Roberts is the current co-managing partner at the law firm of Hirsch, Roberts, and Weinstein. Roberts is an experienced litigator and trial lawyer who has been trying and resolving complex employment and business disputes for over 25 years. Scott regularly represents colleges and universities, and he has successfully defended institutional clients in jury trials, administrative actions, including matters before OCR, and arbitrations in cases involving high-profile allegations of sexual misconduct, claims of discrimination based on age, gender, race, national origin, and disability, disputes about tenure and promotion, and claims by students challenging internal disciplinary proceedings. Drawing upon his experience as a trial lawyer, Scott has also served as an independent fact finder in multiple cases involving allegations of sexual misconduct in violation of Title IX, claims of sexual harassment, and claims of alleged disability discrimination. Nationally and locally, Scott has presented seminars on critical issues facing institutions of higher education, including effective methods for preventing and investigating claims of sexual misconduct, cyberbullying, and compliance with Title IX, state and federal anti-discrimination laws, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. Scott is the former co-chair of the Boston Bar Association's College and University Section. Scott also represents corporate clients from startups to publicly traded companies in a wide variety of litigation matters. Scott has handled multiple cases concerning the protection of corporate confidential information and trade secrets, often involving the enforcement of non-competition and non-solicitation agreements. These cases often require that clients immediately obtain or defend against motions for temporary restraining orders and preliminary injunctions, and Scott is skilled at quickly and persuasively marshalling the facts and arguments needed to address those motions on a fast track basis. Scott has extensive know-how on a wide range of employment matters, having litigated an array of discrimination cases, shareholder disputes, and commission and wage claims. Scott also helps his clients avoid employment disputes through tailored training and counseling designed to enhance supervisory relationships and improve documentation of performance issues, which often becomes critical evidence if litigation occurs. Scott has also negotiated multiple executive-level employment agreements and compensation packages. He served as lead counsel in cases in Massachusetts, New York, California, Pennsylvania, Florida, Virginia, and Idaho, and has successfully argued cases before the Massachusetts Appeals Court, the First Circuit Court of Appeals, and the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Welcome to the podcast, Scott Roberts. Scott is currently an attorney at law with the firm Hirsch Roberts Weinstein in Boston, Massachusetts. Welcome, Scott. Thanks very much, Jill. And Scott, our conversation today will really focus on the art of writing investigation reports, and we're looking forward to giving our listeners some technical expertise and tips and tricks uh, on how to be an effective report writer. want to make sure listeners recognize ahead of time that while Scott is an attorney, he is not providing us legal advice. So for your legal advice, please make sure you seek your general campus counsel or whomever your campus contracts with to give you legal advice. Um, But Scott, can you tell us how you got to your current place at your firm and how sexual misconduct investigations became part of your focus? Sure, Jill. Um, I started my practice in Boston at a large, you know, white shoe law firm. 
and then probably in about 1997 moved over to a smaller litigation boutique. And at that time, I started representing a number of colleges and universities in the area because my partner happened to have relationships with a few area colleges. So that became a steady part of my practice for quite some time. I got to see you know, the various types of cases that would uh, arise on college campuses and, and worked in defending universities and, and colleges in those cases. I think for me, with respect to the move into Title IX, uh, like it was for many colleges and universities, the watershed date and moment was April 4, 2011, when the Obama-era Dear Colleague letter came out. Uh, at that point, I think I, I had a flood, perhaps better said as a deluge of questions coming into cl- from clients asking how they best meet the demands of that document. I would say it was probably shortly after that that I was first asked to conduct my own investigation of the claim of student-on-student misconduct. And then soon after that, I started speaking to area colleges about what was good investigative practice. And in drawing uh, on on that teaching, I relied upon my experience as a litigator in forming simple questions, doing careful analysis, In much the same way I would put together a case, I put together an investigation. I started then speaking nationally on the subject of conducting investigations, and it has become a uh, solid and significant part of my practice since then. The other aspect of it was around this time, I had two daughters who were going off to school. Issues of uh, sexual misconduct on campus were not only being discussed at my office, but were frequently being, being discussed at home as well. So it became something that was uh, an issue for me, both in my work life and my home life, and something that I became uh, quite interested in. I also was convinced at the time that it was important to make sure that people understood that this was a community issue and not a gendered-based issue. Uh, When I first started going to panels that would discuss campus sexual misconduct, very frequently all of the panelists would be women. And that is terrific, but it can also send a message that this is a woman's issue. And it is not a woman's issue. It is a campus issue. It is a culture issue. And I think it was important, actually, to be present on panels that discussed campus sexual misconduct to kind of be a a visual representation, if you will, that says this is a a broader issue. It applies to everyone who sets foot on your campus. So it sounds like you've had some personal experiences and you've had um, some campus-based experiences, which would probably give you a very well-rounded perspective on how these investigations can impact not only the individual parties, but the campus communities at large. So with all of that in mind, what are some of the underlying principles that you identify for success when doing an investigation in a report? I think both with respect to conducting the investigation and writing the report you should be guided by three things, really. The first one is balance. The second is fairness. And the third is thoughtfulness. If you put all of those together, I think you serve the community well, you serve the complainant and the respondent well, and actually, from a broader perspective, I think you minimize the likelihood of risk for, uh, for the institution involved. But when I write an investigative report, I think it's very important that someone, when they're reading it, can immediately understand how I reached my conclusion. Uh, I've got my analysis there. I've got my evidence there. And I explain how it was I got to the decision I made. 
in many of these cases, we know they're, they're very close calls, and all of them are governed by the preponderance of the evidence standard, meaning it only has to tip one way or the other, just you know, the, the, the proverbial feather on the scale. So in a lot of these cases, they could go either way, but there is something about the evidence uh, and your analysis of the evidence that causes you to come down one way or the other. And your report should make that clear. I think that if you, you just look at these situations and say, well, the complainant said X and the respondent said Y, and I can't make a decision because complainant said X and respondent said Y, you're doing a disservice to the process, the institution, and the parties involved. Typically, there is evidence out there that will allow you to make a decision and have you come down one way or the other. You need to look at it, analyze it, and kind of have the conviction to reach the conclusion. You mentioned preponderance of the evidence is a standard that you use. It's also the standard by which ASCA recommends all sexual misconduct investigations be worked through under because in ASCA's eyes, it's the only standard that really provides true equity for all the parties. So how are you and your firm responding to some of the uh, kind of new developments that are happening with OCR in terms of the guidance about preponderance versus clear and convincing? Well, I think at this stage of the game, the OCR has simply said, you can use, we're, we're not going to dictate a standard mm-hmm. of evidence. We're not going to, or excuse me, a burden of proof. We're not going to say it has to be preponderance of the evidence. We're not going to say that it might be something higher, like clear and convincing. Um, I think that most schools that have moved to uh, preponderance of the evidence uh, are going to keep that standard. I don't think in the, in the wake of uh, the withdrawal of the Obama-era guidance, you're going to see many schools go back to where they were. Um, I, I don't think, I think probably before uh, 2011, there was only a small percentages of school, a small percentage of school that were using the higher standard of clear and convincing evidence. So, I don't see that um, the current changes in this administration will cause any serious changes on the burden of proof on campus. Sure. What are some common flaws or errors that you are kind of noticing as campuses investigate and write their reports for these types of cases? I have. A couple of real uh, bugaboos about reports. I like bugaboos. This Um, is a good way of framing them. (laughs) (laughs) Or or real problems. Uh, My my first and biggest one is unexplained conclusions. Um, I have a real problem with that. I do not like when someone says, I found his report credible. I found her statement, credible, without any explanation. And I see it very frequently in in courts, excuse me, in reports that may come across my desk that simply say, well, um, the complainant told me this story and it sounded credible to me. And I always pause on that because I'm like, whenever I'm sitting with a witness, it, it is not infrequently the case that whether it's complainant or respondent, the person's version of events may sound credible in the moment. You're listening to the story. You're not looking at other evidence. It may be presented very well, and you, you think, wow, that sounds credible. But that's not what we do as investigations. We have to determine whether or not somebody's version of events should be credited. 
And the only way that something should be credited is if it is corroborated, sustained, consistent, something else that allows an investigator to make a decision that says, I credit this person's story because of X, Y, and Z. So to simply say, well, I found the respondent credible or the complainant credible means nothing. Typically, it means that I reacted to someone's demeanor in the moment. And I think that's a poor form of, of, of report writing and really indicates a complete lack of analysis. So whenever I'm teaching report writing, I ask people to try to stay, stay away from the word credible um, and instead say, I credit X and then to say why. So if you have two versions of events and you have to choose which one you're crediting, say, I credit this and then list the reasons. So the other one that I have is just the insertion of kind of advocacy jargon within a report. And when I say advocacy jargon, I mean that there are, there are um, you know, uh, advocacy groups on both sides of the issue of campus sexual misconduct. Uh, you know, those who think the pendulum has swung too far, those who think it's not swung far enough, and they very frequently, in, in, in making their positions known publicly, use a lot of jargony language. And sometimes you'll see that kind of language picked up in a report, and it shouldn't be. I mean, your job as an investigator is to analyze evidence fairly and clearly and not use assumptions about behavior or conduct and the like, but to actually really think about what occurred and what evidence you have as to what occurred. So I want to go back and touch on that credibility assessment component, because I think that's probably one of the more controversial areas right now in report writing. Uh, And so part of that is this kind of imaginary reasonable person standard that we've been talking about for several years in the field uh, and who that imaginary reasonable person might be and from what cultural lens they might come from. When you are talking about credibility of the information versus, or sorry, crediting the information versus credibility of the person, what are some of those key ways that investigators and report writers can frame these uh, pieces of information so that they truly are crediting the report and the evidence? That's a good question. I mean, there, there are times when, as I said, you will sit with someone and perhaps they speak with you in a quiet manner. And I'm referring to either a complainant or respondent. They don't get agitated. They stay entirely neutral. They don't get too high, don't get too low. And for all intents and purposes, may look like they're just floating through this process. That could be attributable to any number of factors. It might be attributable to uh, a reaction to trauma. It might be uh, attributable to a cultural uh, bent or uh, uh, the, the, the culture from which someone was, was, was raised. And so you don't want to reach a judgment on the way somebody just presents to say, well, that must mean X. You, you'd have people in reports say, well, he was very quiet when he was responding to the allegations. He wasn't at all angry, so his, cli- his quietness I'm going to interpret as a sign of guilt. Um, same thing with a complainant. 
the complainant said to me the following happened, but didn't get agitated when conveying it, so it doesn't seem to be that important to him or her. That's not helpful. I mean, if someone says, this is what happened on you know, the night of November 3rd, then I want to look at the evidence of what occurred before the incident, during the incident, and immediately after the incident. And you may have evidence you know, indicating before the incident. Let's assume a situation of incapacitation where the complainant says that he or she was incapacitated. And you have text messages going on before the incident describing you know, exactly what's being, uh, what, what alcohol is being consumed you see text messages start to suddenly fall apart in terms of their context and grammar. You have uh, a, a blackout period of time, perhaps, during the incident itself, where there's no other evidence other than words. And then immediately afterwards, you may have text messages saying things like, I have no idea where I am right now. Uh, can someone please come get me? It is looking at the surrounding evidence, the, the evidence before, during, and after, that allows you to try to make an, uh, make an informed judgment as to what occurred during the incident. And it's really that process, to harken back what I said before, if an investigator just says, well, she says X, he says Y, we don't know how to decide, I think that's irresponsible for an investigator. You really do need to look at what is the evidence documentary evidence, oral testimony evidence of what occurred before and after that will allow you to make you know, judgments about, you know, about which version you're going to credit. I think it's a very complex thing to think about. And I think one of the things that investigators often wrestle with as well is what is the order of operations when conducting an, a good investigation? Um, who gets interviewed first? Who gets interviewed second? Uh, how do you manage advisors in the process, etc.? So what advice do you have for that type of technical area of the work? This is one of those situations where I always comment that uh, I went to law school for three years to learn how to say two words. It depends. <laughs> now, typically, I will interview a complainant first. Uh, and this is especially the case if the complaint that I have received or that has been presented to me is not you know, very clear on the events that occurred. Because when I want to sit down and talk with a respondent, I want to be as clear as possible about what it is I'm asking him or her about, that uh, you know, I, I have a good sense of what the allegations are. So I typically will uh, you know, interview the complainant, understand what the complainant's version of events is, and then interview the respondent. Currently, we are in a, in a climate where respondents, more likely than not, are going to be seeking the assistance of outside counsel, and that can sometimes delay the process itself. And I may make the informed decision of, well, I don't want to wait two weeks to ask the respondent questions. There may be other people who were mentioned during the complainant's recitation of events that make it clear to me that, hey, there are others that I can talk to in the meantime. My goal is to always try to be moving forward while recognizing that in any, uh, in any investigation, you're going to get knocked off track at some point. It just happens. But you have to try to do your best to keep the process moving forward as best you can. We've talked about 
the investigation and the report when we're assuming one complainant and one respondent. Can you give any advice for when we're looking at large-scale investigations, uh, for example, with a student organization like a marching band or a fraternity or sorority or a sports team? It becomes that much more complicated in prioritizing who you're going to interview first. I will say that when you get into investigations of organizations, you have to be that much more careful about whether or not there's any form of collusion in the answers that you're getting at uh, the, the interviews. Has there been an agreed-upon version of events? And I will typically say to witnesses and complainants and respondents at the beginning of an interview, I say, listen, I want to let you know that when I'm asking you questions today about an event, I don't expect that everything that you tell me today will match up 100% with what somebody else tells me. I said, now, if, if I were to actually take all of the people in the room right now, you, complainant, your advisor, my co-investigator, and me, and we were all to go outside later and I was to ask you what happened during the interview, we would all have slightly different version of events because we all come from different perspectives. We're all focusing on different things, thinking about different things. They said, so I would expect if I ask questions or somebody asked questions of everyone who is just in this room, the versions would sound similar, but not identical. What I start to get worried about, I will say, is if I start to hear a version of events that is exactly the same. Like I talked to a series of people who were all at a party at this event or on this sports team or in this organization, and everything I'm told, down to the choice of words, the organization of events, the timeline, etc., sounds exactly the same. So that will be the kind of thing that will give me pause and make me think that perhaps this is a cooked version of events, not one that is being organically provided to me. And when you're hearing those cooked versions of events, how do you describe those as credited or discredited in a report? I think that the, what I would do is to say that I, it's, very, it's very useful to just line up what you've been told and the statements. You know, I asked persons A, B, C, and D the following question. Here are their responses, and then actually put them in. Those are the kind of things where, um, as a party, a colleague of mine used to say, you know, tell me the facts and allow me to reach the conclusion. If I were to just say they all cooked this version of events and then didn't tell you why, that would, again, not be a good report. But if I allowed all of those statements to be listed in the report in order, perhaps tabled out, and showing that everybody uses the same words, the same description, etc. Before I get to what my conclusion is, the reader of the report will have already reached the same conclusion. This looks a little fishy. I'm not sure I can credit this. So you're hoping then through your writing that the reader and the decision maker on the report has enough information that they can say or identify clearly that yes, there is or no, there is not a preponderance. Absolutely. I don't expect, I don't, and I don't expect the, any reader to necessarily agree with my conclusion. They may disagree with the conclusion, 
But because the standard is preponderance of the evidence, I would expect any reader upon reading to, the, to upon reading one of my report to say, I understand. I get it. I understand how he got there. When we have these multiple uh, multiple investigations or even um, single investigations with multiple areas of concerning conduct. So the, the person might have alleged to have been engaged in sexual misconduct, but also may have alleged to have engaged in provision of alcohol to a minor or mm-hmm. other elements of assault or, you know, anything else related to our violations of our policies. Uh, we're seeing campuses run different processes about who investigates all of those pieces and trying to avoid putting students through multiple processes. Um, So what is your recommendation for practice or considerations for practice when deciding what process or processes to use on our campuses when there are those multiple concerns? Again, that's an excellent question. I think with respect to the evaluation of instances of sexual misconduct, this has really become uh, a very specialized area. Uh, You had mentioned... uh, alcohol violations or drug and alcohol violations. It seems that most schools right now, because the lion's share of incidents of sexual misconduct involve the use of drugs and alcohol, that there is an amnesty provision with respect to those who are reporting. So if you have a complainant who is uh, underaged and has been drinking alcohol Uh, he or she is not going to be subject to the disciplinary process for coming forward. But let's assume within the confines of a claim of sexual misconduct that the reason somebody went to a room uh, was to purchase drugs. Uh, And the complainant says, I went into the room and said that I wanted to buy uh, some Oxycontin, and uh, the respondent said, uh, I'll give you some free pills if you have sex with me. Uh, and the complainant says, I, say no. I said no, and then he attacked me. So you're going to have two aspects of that. You're going to have the aspect of what occurred within the confines of the sexual misconduct process. But that can take some time and some careful analysis as well, and it usually is with a particular trained individual who's going to be handling that. But if you have a student who is selling OxyContin on campus, I don't think that that needs to await the outcome of a sexual misconduct proceeding. And it very well may be that that's the kind of thing that just goes through your general student conduct process, whatever it may be. And I think in that situation, it actually makes sense to separate them and have the, uh, the drug violation process looked at differently and to see if there is additional information supporting a finding that somebody was uh, selling OxyContin out of their room. So I, I know that instances can involve uh, multiple infractions, but I think that those who investigate claims of sexual misconduct should investigate the claims of sexual misconduct. And typically, that's what the policies provide. It doesn't provide, well, if the sale of drugs occurred within an instance of sexual misconduct as well, we'll also look at the the sale of drugs. So I I think that in my experience, and most policies deal with them separately, my experience, they're handled separately, and most policies deal with them separately. 
I've also seen some campus models where uh, the investigators for the sexual misconduct component will also do fact-finding for, let's use your example, for an alleged drug violation, but they won't make a finding on that component and they'll turn that back over to student conduct. Um, So the timeline looks the same, but what do you think of that model? I actually think it's okay. I mean, I think that if you've gathered the evidence and can say, this is what the evidence shows me, uh, and then turn that over to whatever the decision-making entity is on, again, let's say the OxyContin violation, that's fine, as long as it comports with your process. I mean, you want to avoid a situation where somebody says, well, wait a minute, there's supposed to be an entirely separate process for this, and then they just did this kind of ad hoc analysis within the sexual misconduct proceeding and then kicked it back over there and deprived me of some right that I'm entitled to in my other conduct proceeding. So again, I don't have a problem with it, with the caveat that you want to make sure that doing that is always consistent with your process. And I think that's always the best advice that we give in ASCA as well as number one rule, follow your process, follow what you told your community you say you're going to do. Um, and that's usually the best way to be successful. I will say that that was one of the big concerns, again, after April of 2011. Everybody put in place these policies that they thought met the terms of the DCL, but what they realized was these policies did not work in practice. Or folks would say, well, we have these wonderful brand spanking new policies put in place, and then not follow them. And I have always said when when doing training both on investigation and litigation, you know, if, if you don't follow your policies and bad things come home to roost, you have no one to blame but yourself. So let's stick in that policy realm for a minute here. And I also am wondering about your thoughts on who should be reviewing the investigation report before a decision is made. Uh, Some campuses have it where it's just the parties and maybe their advisors. Other campuses, it runs through the Title IX coordinator, general counsel, maybe HR, student conduct, etc. And there's uh, moments for feedback from all of those parties and certain processes. Um, So what is your recommended model in kind of an ideal world? Well, I think with respect to the evidence that's been gathered, and that may be in the form of witness summaries, text messages, anything that you've gathered, Instagram photos, Snapchats, anything that you have gathered that may be used to reach a conclusion in your investigative report, you not only should, but I believe that you must make that information available to both the complainant, the respondent, and, 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 and their advisors. Uh, I think that's a very important part of the investigative process because I think that both parties should have that kind of final opportunity to respond to the evidence so that they can say, okay, um, I see in this witness summary that witness A said the following. Well, uh, here's some additional information you should know about that. So that at the end of the day, once all of that information is gathered and there's been that opportunity to fairly respond, the investigator is in a position then to really commence the process of deliberation and trying to figure out whether a violation of the Code of Conduct has been established by a preponderance of the evidence. Now, once the investigative report is written itself, in which the conclusions are reached, um, and it may be that a draft report is prepared. And I know that some institutions will say, well, when a draft report is prepared, you know, send it on over to the Title IX coordinator or the deputy general counsel for review and comment and feedback. And, and that's okay with me. I, I'm very comfortable with that idea of someone 
looking at the report and reading it. Because at the end of the day, or the draft report, because at the end of the day, what I want to do is put forward the best product that reflects my analysis. Now, I have never had a situation where anyone, thankfully, has ever asked me to change a conclusion. Say I find someone not responsible. No one has ever said, I really think you should find him or her responsible. And, you know, vice versa. If I found someone not responsible and somebody says, I think you should find him responsible. That doesn't happen. What I will have occasionally occur is that someone will say, listen, I've read your analysis and I see that in support of your uh, conclusion, you list points one, two, three, and four. And someone may say to me, listen, I'm reading this, but I have to tell you that from my perspective, it really is, number three is really the most persuasive point for me. And if I were to order them, they would go three, one, two, four. And I'll look at that and say, you know, I'm very close to this. You know, that may be a piece of evidence that didn't hit me, but may hit someone else. And upon reflection, I may look at that and say, you know what, that that really is the better way to lay out my analysis. I think that says better what I intended to do. And if I agree with the conclusion on reflection, then I'll say, you know what, I, I can do that. I can restructure that. I think that makes sense. But then again, I may also come back and say, you know, I really have ordered these exactly the way I think that they should go. I think they should go one, two, three, four, and here's why. And I'm not actually thinking that three is important as you do. I think it's less important. Here's why. But then I realize that maybe I want to add that to the report to say why one is the most important, why three is not as important and is listed where it is. Because the goal to me of review is always this, to try to come up with the best report that best reflects my analysis. So when you're thinking about uh, that report component and when you're finishing up the product, we also need to think about who the decision maker is. Uh, And I'm wondering what your recommendation and experiences have been with the investigator making the decision on whether or not a preponderance was met versus sending that over to the Title IX coordinator or the Office of Student Conduct to make that determination based on the report that was prepared. I am a strong proponent that the investigator should make that decision. Um, Otherwise, the investigator is nothing more than a a conduit of information. Uh, I think it's important that I, as an investigator, reach the conclusion rather than tender over pages of paper to someone who hasn't sat with the witnesses, hasn't likely analyzed the evidence in the same way that I have. So I do think that it's important for the investigator to reach the conclusion of, uh, of responsibility. I think that those models that, say, have an investigator do a report, which is really kind of just fact-gathering, and then there's a separate process in which complainant and respondent testify to a hearing board, and the investigator shows up and testifies what the investigator learned during the process, and they kind of hear everything all over again is unwieldy, and I think that the process itself can act as a barrier to people coming forward with concerns. If they know, my God, I'm going to have to tell my version of events six times to, you know, ten different people, why do I want to sign up for that? But I do think it's important that the investigator reach the conclusion, but solely on the issue of whether or not 
the po- uh, a policy has been violated, whether the conduct policy has been violated. I strongly urge against having the investigator make the decision on the sanction. That's where I really think it's important for the student conduct and the Title IX coordinator to be involved. Because the student conduct people and the Title IX coordinator are going to have a better sense of the overall history of matters that are similar or not similar to the matter that's been investigated and decided. And they're going to have a better handle in these particular circumstances as to what the appropriate sanction is. And I'm also always mindful of the fact that so many um, people, when they talk about, well, I want to be investigators, will say things, but... That, that will indicate that they're, they're heavily focused on the potential outcome of the investigation and, and what the impact can be. And that's okay to be aware, however you decide, that your decision will have an impact on someone. But if you allow that to govern how you're, you're going to come out, I think that's really problematic. I think that the decision on the sanction should be separated from the conclusion as to whether or not the policy has been violated. I agree with you on that analysis, and I also think that most of our codes probably don't provide authority um, for an investigator to make that decision, Um, and so I really appreciate the thoughtfulness behind separating those two components. Um, I'm also wondering, with that separation, in your mind, who makes the notification to the parties uh, when the report is ready and, and when that sanction is decided? And kind of what are your pro tips and tricks for looking at that simultaneous and timely notification to everybody? Yeah, I know for certain that it is never me. Uh, I never do that. And I'm not part of that process. Typically, in my experience, once the report is in hand and both parties will have an opportunity to review it, it's usually presented to one or both parties at or around the same time by um, the dean of students, an assistant dean of students, or the Title IX coordinator. And I think that that is appropriate to have you know, someone who is actually in the conduct process and who actually understands the area uh, explaining what the outcome was. And then also I'm, I'm trying to think about in general, what does that collaborative process look like between the investigation office and the other student affairs departments that might be in play? How do, how do investigators create good working relationships with those folks? That's a, that's a wonderful question. But yeah, as an independent out, uh, investigator, you frequently come in from the outside with, with no real ability to you know, kind of facilitate communication between uh, disparate parts of the university. I think that what you can do is that you treat all parties with equal respect. Uh, The moment, for anybody who's ever worked in higher ed, that you start prioritizing one department over another or one division over another, that's typically when you run into um, problems. I think it's important to remember that everybody that you deal with on a college campus from faculty, staff, to administration, are professionals, and they should be treated as professionals. Uh, That's kind of been my mantra for as long as I've been working with colleges and universities, and I think it served me well in my role as an investigator. 
One of the other big skills for investigators is really around those soft skills and actually sitting in a space with someone who is alleging that they've experienced an extraordinary trauma or someone who has allegedly committed an act of violence um, or, you know, the witnesses in between. So how do you suggest that investigators go about developing that skill set to kind of be in that space and elicit information, knowing that it's a very tense space to begin with? I think it's important that you let both sides know, and I typically do, that I, I don't represent one party or the other, um, and that I really represent a process of gathering information in a fair and unbiased manner in an effort to try to reach a decision. I'll typically tell complainant and respondent in the initial interviews, and I typically do two interviews that in the first interview, it's going to feel a little bit more comfortable because I'm going to be asking very open-ended questions, listening, uh, probably not challenging in any way, um, but listening and trying to get a version of events. It may be that I may have something particular that I need to ask about to, say, a respondent because the complainant's already provided me a particular piece of information. But typically, it's an open narrative. And in that first communication, both sides may feel, wow, you know, he's listening to me, he's on my side, uh, he gets it, he's, he's my advocate or something like that. And I always very gently disabuse them of that. And I always let them know that, listen, if you need resources to both sides, I want to let you know I understand that, but that's not something I handle. That's something that you should, when this discussion is over, speak with both with your advisor or the folks in student affairs to be sure that that's taken care of. Because you'll have that sometime level of attachment during the initial interview from both complainant and respondent, particularly if you're sitting there listening to their story in a respectful manner. I will also tell complainant and respondent that when I conduct a second interview, I will likely be presenting them pieces of information that I've learned in the investigation and asking them about them. And I'll tell both. I said, listen, when I'm asking you a question about something I've been told, it's going to feel like I'm confronting you. And I don't want you to think that. My reason for asking you about this particular piece of information is because I deeply believe that it is fair to offer you an opportunity to respond. You know, I would feel terrible if the first time you heard about this piece of information was when you were reviewing the evidence at the end of the, uh, once the investigations and interviews were over, and that you hadn't had an opportunity to talk to me about that. So I'll very clearly explain to people, repeatedly by the way, that this is what will happen. I'll tell them that at the beginning of the first interview. I'll tell them that at the end of the first interview. And I'll tell them this at the beginning of the second interview. Now, inevitably, the second interview feels a little bit more uncomfortable because this level of particularized questioning occurs. But I think as long as you continue to repeat and say, listen, I'm trying to present this to you to see what your response is. And your response very well may be to me, that didn't happen that did happen or something in between. But the reason I'm offering you this opportunity is because I believe it's fair to do so. I really appreciate you kind of walking us through your script of how that might sound when you're sitting in a room with folks. Because I think that everyone, 
has to do that in a way that is authentic for their own voices, but also kind of touches on those iterative points um, so that folks can really hear us. I think that oftentimes our complainants and respondents are not fully able to soak all of the information, all the process in on the first try, um, because there is such a complex beast behind how we're doing these investigations. Uh, and I, I understand. I think you know, it's it's interesting because there are times when you walk into an interview or interviews in an investigation, and by the end of the process, both sides, you know, will say, "Oh, he's biased." Mm-hmm. And if both sides say he's biased, that's probably a good sign. Um, that means that neither side felt you know particularly comfortable. I've had you know complainants say to me. You know, at this point in the investigation, can't you just give me the benefit of the doubt? And I would have to say that during the interview process, I don't give anyone the benefit of the doubt. I'm listening to your stories, and then once I begin the deliberative process, that's when I'll do my analysis. And I'll have respondents say to me that they think that the questions I'm asking, you know, sound like I'm prosecuting them. And I'm, I will tell them, I am not prosecuting you. That's not my job. My job isn't you know, to, to establish the other side's case or to defend yours. My job is to try to figure out as best I can what happened. So after all of these interviews are complete, can you walk us through kind of the basic anatomy of what you might include in a report? Sure. Um, I mean, I always start with, I always have a, a, you know, a procedural section. What was the charge? Uh, how did I, you know, uh, how was it, how was the other side notified of the charge? You know, when did it come forward? How was the other side notified? Uh, and then a description of what occurred. When did the, uh, when, when did the, when were the witnesses interviewed? Uh, in what order were they interviewed? What date were they interviewed? How long did their interviews last? If there's a description then of the opportunity to review evidence, I think that's important. You know, on January 5th, you know, the evidence binders were presented and made available separately to both the complainant and the respondent. On January 10th, a uh, complainant came in and reviewed the binders with uh, his or her advisor for five hours. On January 11th, respondent came in and reviewed the binders with his or her advisor for 10 hours. Uh, so that the document itself, if you pick it up, will allow anyone to understand what occurred. Uh, The way I've always said it, particularly after 2011, is I want my investigative report to be able to be handed over to the Office of Civil Rights if need be, to say very simply, this is what happened. And they can then look at the procedure, the policy that was applied, the gathering of the evidence, and then the analysis. So that typically is how I will lay out a report. Here's how the complaint came. Here's the policy. Here's the procedure. Here's the, the evidence that I gathered. Here's my analysis. Here's my conclusion. Is there a template you might be willing to share with some of our members? Sure. That would be excellent. Uh, well, Scott, I think you've shared some amazing resources and technical expertise today. Is there anything that you wanted to share that I haven't asked you about? I will say that there's a lot of people out there who, who think they can do this job. And really what they mean is I've, you know, I worked in a prosecutor's office or I've listened to witnesses before or whatever. But the reality is that they will not, they're not prepared to make a hard decision. They're not prepared to look a complainant in the eye and say, I'm not going to find the respondent responsible. 
and they're not prepared to look a respondent in the eye and say, I'm going to find you responsible. You have to be willing to do that. You have to be cognizant that this is a very serious process and that a decision needs to be made. If every report you write is, well, I can't reach a decision here because he said, and then he said, and then she said, and then she said, you do no one a service. You have to take the process very, very seriously and be willing to commit to making a decision if you can. Thank you. And as always, we like to ask our guests what you are reading right now. <laughs> Questions at this stage, what am I not reading? <laughs> um, uh, I, I will tell you that for someone who works in the field of uh, uh, sexual misconduct, I just read a wonderful book that I cannot recommend enough, uh, which is uh, Frederick Bachman's Beartown. Uh, I am not a fan of hockey, although I am from Boston. And it is a book that begins as an ode to hockey, but then becomes uh, a real analysis of what happens in a culture when a young woman in town is sexually assaulted by a star hockey player Mm. and the impact that that has on a community. Uh, I thought it was exceptionally well written. It was sensitive. It it, it reflected a real awareness of uh, the issues of sexual misconduct. The other book I'm reading right... Pardon me? That's fiction? It is, yes. Excellent. All right. The, the other book I'm reading right now is at my daughter's recommendation. She and I are both uh, thriller fans, and she's recently recommended a book to me um, called The Woman in the Window, which is about uh, a, a, an agoraphobic woman who is trapped in her house, who not unlike uh, Alfred Hitchcock's rear window is uh, viewing her neighbors through binoculars and cameras and trying to figure out what's going on. On a bigger perspective, I'll read any quality legal thriller there is, but I emphasize the word quality because there are so many bad ones out there. I love anything that, is, uh, that reflects good, solid questioning and genuine courtroom scenes with lawyers who sound like good lawyers. And to reach back way far in time, uh, I probably think my favorite legal book uh, is Anatomy of a Murder by Robert Traver, which I think was written in 1954 and was an absolutely brilliant movie with uh, Jimmy Stewart, uh, Lee Remick, and George C. Scott. So I I, I commend either to either your reading or viewing Anatomy of a Murder. I think every time I speak with a new guest, my reading list just gets longer than I have time for, and it's so (laughs) depressing. (laughs) I know. Right now, I would say that the, the stack of books on my bedside table is starting to look a bit like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, but so be it. <laughs> we'll get to them. <laughs> um, Eventually. Well, Scott, if folks have follow-up questions for you, if they want to get a hold of you after the podcast, how can they do so? Anyone is free to feel free to reach out to me at my office. Uh, my office is Hirsch Roberts Weinstein in Boston. Uh, you can contact me on my office phone, which is 617-348-4340. Or uh, send me an email, uh, which may be the best way, which is sroberts at hrwlawyers.com. And if you'd like to reach the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast. That's A-S-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Or you can email us at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, Scott, for sharing your viewpoint today. You're very welcome, Jill. Thank you. 
This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards and to the University of Oregon's Dean of Students team for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com.